Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. What you're about to hear is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Toronto 2020. Mahabharat, adapting ancient myth for modern theatre. Devdat Patnayak in conversation with Ravi Jain and Miriam Fernandez. to everyone out there around the world. I'm Miriam and we are so happy to be at JLF Toronto and welcome you to this very exciting conversation between myself, Ravi and the incredible David Patnayak. Um, just to give you a little bit of context, we're going to focus this conversation around Mahabharata as our company, Why Not Theatre, is currently creating a new adaptation of the story for the stage. So today we'll be having a conversation and sharing an excerpt of a work in progress of our Bhagavad Gita, which is being adapted into a Sanskrit opera. Okay, so before we jump in, just have to say it, Devdutt, Miriam and I are so <laughs> excited to be speaking with you. Honestly, it's a career highlight. All your work has been such an inspiration for us, and Jaya in particular was a huge inspiration for our adaptation of the Mahabharata. But before we get into that, I would love for you, so I was introduced to your work first from your amazing TED Talk. I think it was from 2012, but in it you discuss how understanding culture is, an, is necessary to understanding how people live and think. And you propose an important way to understand culture uh, through myths and stories that people grow up with, and that these stories really help understand uh, the fundamental differences between Eastern and Western thinking and philosophy. And I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind summarizing that just to set us up. Sure. You know, the first thing one has to know is the word myth, which we use normally, emerged in the 19th century. It's a Greek word which basically means stories. But in the 19th century, it somehow came to mean fiction. So when people, even today, they'll use words like myth of COVID to mean wrong things that you know about COVID. So the word myth is right. used as a synonym of fiction. However, from a, a linguistic uh, literature point of view, from a postmodern point of view, um, myth has a very different meaning. Um, fact is everybody's truth. Fiction is nobody's truth. And myth is somebody's truth. Uh-huh. So it's every each every culture has its own truth. Some people believe you live only once. And if you believe you live only once, um, which was the thesis of the, the TEDx talk, when you believe you live only once, then that in that one life, you want to achieve everything that you want to achieve. But if you believe you live many lives, then there is no hurry because there's another chance and another chance and another chance. So Indian stories are located in this idea of multiple lives. You don't live only once, you have another chance. So there's no stress that this is it. This is the only opportunity <laughs> you're going to get. And there are two very different ways of looking at the world. The Chinese way is altogether very different. The African way is even more different. The Australian way is very different. So every tribal community, every community of people has its own imagination of the world. And that's the idea. And we express our imagination through stories, symbols, and rituals. And that binds us so that when we say that this is Indian culture, we mean there is an imagination binding these people. When we say Navajo Indians think in a particular way, we say the Maasai think in a particular way, 
people of Kenya think in a particular way, the people of Finland think in a particular way. So every mm -hmm. part of the world, when you say New York thinks in a particular way, it means its imagination is bound by stories, symbols, rituals. And Indian stories, symbols and rituals tell us about the Indian way of thinking. So if you want to access Indian thought, you access it through Indian stories, symbols and rituals. So that, that yeah. was what the TED talk was about. And it was, it's so great because we, so we, we were chatting with you on the phone the other day and this idea of time that you talk about that's so fundamentally different between East and West. In the East, it's not linear, it's cyclical. Uh, we sh we had shared a little excerpt of our, of our Mahabharata with Devdat and you immediately picked out the line we had started with in the beginning. Yeah. And you said, no, there is no beginning. There's no end. There just is. Yes. And, and uh, it, I mean, for Ravi and I, who who are straddling the worlds of East and West, and our and our cast and our uh, our story is straddling these two worlds. It's it as storytellers, we're always looking for climax. We're looking to build towards something and have a climax and a denouement. But that's a very Western storytelling style. Yeah, you see the whole idea of telescoping. So it's like the seed and the fruit. Seed and the fruit. So what comes first, the seed or the fruit? So the last scene, is it the fruit that you're going to bite into or does it contain a seed that will lead to another tree forming? And that's the fundamental difference that you see. So the Mahabharat comes from a tradition where there is no beginning and there is no end. So when you say in the beginning, for me, the first thing is Genesis. It's Eden. It is, we are talking of the world coming to, we use words like the world was innocent. And this is yeah. what happened. You know, you see this in a lot of storytelling that in the beginning, all was innocent and all was good. This is not the Indian storytelling. The, the forest always existed. There were always predators. There were always prey. There were always rivals. There were always allies. And things happened in the middle of the forest. One of them was the Mahabharata. So. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so fascinating because like, it's that that feeling of because we grew up in in Canada, or we, that's our influences. Inevitably, we're going to think in that way that is dominant, that cultural dominant of that um, one life thinking, that that sort of Aristotelian uh, rising action climax denouement, that that way of thinking, and that's been a real journey, I think, for us in this Mahabharata. So just to just to share with you, like I grew up, you know, in a in Indian immigrants in Canada, so you know. Mahabharata was in the background on the television screen growing up. So I kind of had a little bit of it, but as you say, nobody ever sits from beginning, middle to end. So I had pieces of it. And in university, I learned about Peter Brooks production, which was really fascinating um, because here was this story that was supposed to be, I was supposed to have a connection to, and I saw it through the lens of all this international people, which, which was a really strange experience to have a, a, an experience that was at once familiar and at once distant and, and foreign. And so when I started working on this play, it was about, it's been about a five year journey. And as Miriam mentioned, we've been working with a cast from all around the world, from the UK, from Australia, from across Canada. And what's fascinating is, so we started with, so in the process, we started with Jaya and we would read it. So we would go, we'd read Mahabisha and Shantanu and we'd read it as you told it. And then we'd, I'd say, okay, go away and you know tell this now from your in your own words in your own perspective and just how how would you tell it uh, if we were sitting at dinner and so the british actors would come and they would they would interpret it by talking about the raid 
or the pub or using drugs or like just whatever kind of cultural, uh, you know, um, <laughs> language and phenomena that they had in, in, in Canada. And especially at the time when we were writing that draft, it was around Me Too. So all the young, there was a real feminist kind of lens and um, the, the cultural influences that we all had from our places were informing the text that we, we had a draft that was so far away from what Mahabharata was that we had to refine it and come back to Jaya's story structure and another writer, Carol Satyamurti, to, that's closer to the Sanskrit sort of structure and storytelling and come back to try to tell it. And it's always been a challenge to find, you know, what as writers, we have to have a point of view on the story. We have to in interpret it, but how to interpret it on its terms and not our terms. Yeah. And the challenge that's of that, I'm wondering if you, no, the thing is also, you know, one must be careful. Mahabharata is not a Sanskrit text. Please understand that this, this privilege of language is a very dangerous thing to do. Mahabharata is an idea. It's an ideas don't have languages. So language mm. is really a tool to express it. So story, because I have to tell you a story, I have to tell you in a language that you know, make speaking in Sanskrit or Latin or Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic doesn't make it a great idea. The idea is great irrespective of the language. So we must be first very clear with it. I do not like Sanskrit snobbery that is very popular amongst people with very limited understanding of culture. You know, yeah. when you put a Tirukuttu performance in, in South India, it is done in Tamil. So it's a, it's a, it's a living theater which is done on the roads, on the streets, in the villages. It's done in Tamil. And you can't go there and say, oh, that's a wrong version because it's not in this Sanskrit language, which was only spoken by the Brahmins, which was yes. not accessible to women, which was not accessible to the Dalits. That's not correct uh, language. This was a language that the author who put it down on piece of paper decided because maybe his audience understood Sanskrit. But it is yes. the oldest uh, non-Sanskrit version comes from my mother tongue, which is Odia, Saraladas Mahabharat. And there are vast variations between the Sanskrit uh, Vyasa Mahabharata and the Saraladas Mahabharata, which is in the 13th century. So you have various, there's the, the there's a Tamil Mahabharata, there is a Telugu Mahabharata, there is a uh, in Hindi uh, Bharata poetries, which was written by Priyadas in the 14th and 15th century. So you have to see the tapestry of these stories and there is something common amongst them. This is what binds India. India is bound by these stories, but nobody hears, nobody has heard the Sanskrit version. Right. Let's remember that nobody has heard it. It's written <laughs> in manuscripts. They were written and they were compiled um, about, you know, it's only 200 years ago in the Bhandarkar in Pune, they compiled these versions from across India. They realized that the critical edition was created in the Bhandarkar Oriental, but it is one language. It is not totally. Odia. It is not that. So when you are speaking in Canada, you can't speak in Sanskrit and it's, it's nice to it. There's an exotic flavor to it and makes it very magical. But imagine yeah. hearing the gospels in some Aramaic, I will not, I'm not Latin or Greek. I mean, the audience will say, no, we want to hear it in language of which I understand. The idea is important. The idea. Yeah. That's the soul of the story to quote Krishna. The flesh is just a fabric that you wear on it. What matters is the soul inside. Meaning, idea, 
your play what is a natya shastra what is an actor called in in the indian languages patra a vessel a vessel which contains an idea so when you come on stage right. you are merely a vessel for an idea you are nothing more than that the idea has to reach the audience and when the audience is inspired so you are a patra a vessel so you still may think oh i'm so great but it's that's not important what is important is have you been able to transmit the message then the yeah. magic has happened that's when people stand up and give a standing ovation not to you but to the idea that has transformed them that is yeah that is such a beautiful way of 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 expressing that and i think it's something that ravi and i that we're thinking about a lot because yes there's there's the language there's the spoken language and then on top of that there's a the theatrical language of how do you interpret how do you show these stories as you mentioned that have been uh told in so many different in spoken languages uh theatrical languages around the world over thousands of years and and how do you uh transmit the the core ideas and so as we've kind of gone through this process of of get as time goes on your my own understanding and Ravi's understanding of the story has transformed because the meaning changes with the context of what we're living in so during me too it means something different uh during covid it means something different and you pick out different parts of the story and uh this this one of the ideas that that we've kind of been that has continuing to come back to us is an idea of justice and it was amazing to speak with you the other day because you also differentiated between the ideas of justice and empathy and the importance of understanding empathy in terms of understanding dharma and can and can you just like can we talk about the distinction there again between justice and empathy because that was really changes the story mind blowing for us honestly like it's so we were we we both got off the phone and we were, we said we're so lucky that mahabharat got postponed cuz we can go back in and like make it <laughs> i have to deal with this all the time because you see dharma is a word which indians use a lot and sometimes rather mischievously we will say that oh it's difficult to appreciate you can't pronounce it in english so this is one way of sort of positioning <laughs> yourself like, oh we are so great indians we had concepts which are greater than humanity and no other human being other than a brown skin person it's brown snobbery at one level let's not uh, you know mince words on it the fact is dharma is a concept a very powerful and central concept and it is based rooted on the idea of rebirth remember i said i began by saying that there is no beginning there is no end in um, the indian thought so buddhist jain and hindu ideas is anadi there is no beginning ananta there is no end this applies to the world and this applies to life so your life and my life has no beginning or end we go through circles so our lives go through transitions then when we die that itself is a comma that's not a full stop it's a comma and then we get a different body and we have new experiences but we carry forward experiences of the past almost like dna the way dna carries forward over generations and generations and generations you are paying the price of the nutrition of your grandparents and your grandparents if there is a genetic anomaly it passes on so there is this concept of karma which is strong now when you have a culture which believes in one life there's a beginning and there's an end and the culture which believes there are many lives so cyclical goes on and on and on the attitude towards justice is very different so in the west when i read a bible i am very struck when i go to sistine chapel and i see the concept of judgment day 
So you have God standing over there making judgment. In Islam, it's called ayamat. At the end of the day, you will be asked, have you been good? Have you been bad? Have you followed the law? Is it halal or haram? Have you done good? <laughs> All those concepts are there, right and wrong. And if you've done good, you shall go to heaven. And if you, I'm paraphrasing, and if you've done bad, you will go to hell. This is an idea which comes from Zoroastrianism. You find this in Christianity. You find this in Islam. To a degree, you find it in the Judaism. It's not so strong in Judaism. It's there in the, but in the height of judgment, you find this even in the Greek mythology. Will you go to the Asphodels fields? Will you go to Elysium? Will you go to Tartarus? So the Egyptians had it. Even the Egyptians had this happen. The pyramids were built. Then you have thought measuring your heart and saying that, okay, this is what is going to happen. Your, your heart will be measured against the feather. And if it is good, bad, indifferent, we will decide where you're going to go. So judgment is very common in ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, in the Christian traditions, in the Islamic traditions. And I said to a small degree in the Jewish traditions. But in the Hindu tradition, God is not a judge. There is no judgment. There is yeah. because there is no beginning or end. So the idea, so when I hear words like justice or social justice, which is so common around the world, I keep asking myself in Indian philosophy, how will I apply this? Because there is no judgment day. There is no kayamat. There is no book of law. There is no commandments against which a law can be fought, a judgment, you know, battle can happen. There is no concept of judgment day. What you have is accounting. So God is an accountant. He's accounting for your actions and deciding, okay, what have you done? How much debt do you owe to the world? <laughs> there debt and repayment debt. So you have to repay your debts. When, if you have got debts, you cannot, you will not be allowed to die. You have to be reborn and on and on till you repay your debts. It's called rin. You have to repay your yeah. debt, your ancestors, which is one of the problems when Bhishma makes this great vow. I will never get married. You know, as a young kid, I would always wonder, what's the big deal? He's not getting married. What a lucky thing. Why is it such a great Bhishma, flowers falling on him and everybody's getting excited. He just wants to not get married. And it never made a sense. I would ask my mother and my mother, shut no, 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 no. You don't respect religion. This is our, you know, all this nonsense. And then you realize the thing is, if you don't get married, which means it's basically saying you will not produce children. Mm -hmm. If you don't produce children, how do you repay your debt to your ancestors? If you don't right. repay your debt to your ancestors, you cannot be reborn. You are trapped in the land of the dead forever. Yeah. That is why Bhishma is called, oh my God, you take this great vow for your father to satisfy his desire. You are saying you will trap yourself forever in the land of the dead. You are forever trapped. You will never come back because you didn't produce children, which is why Indian parents are obsessed with Indians getting married. Get married, get yeah. married, get married. Because, I mean, it's a cultural thing now, but the thing is, if you don't produce children, I mean, it's, a, it's that's how culture is designed. You have, well, and so, so that's what it is. Yeah. So, yeah. And with that, this is a go-to, because like one of the ways to repay the debt that you talk about is in the concept of Dharma, it's the idea is, the burden of responsibility for civilization is for the mighty to take care of the meek. And that's a different kind of idea that there's responsibility. Yes. So, you know, the, when it comes to debt, so the rich have a lot of debt. They come with a lot of debt. So how do you repay your debt? You repay your debt to generosity. 
through kindness, through empathy. See, the fundamental difference over here is as all living creatures are, you know, the, in the nature, the strong eat the weak, the strong eat the weak. That's the nature. All animals do that. It is the mighty eat the meek. Humans are the only creatures with the ability to take care of the meek, to help the helpless. So that becomes the human burden. So when you are born as a human being, you carry the debt of being a human by expressing yourself through empathy. And if you have not expressed through empathy, you are in debt and will be reborn again and be reborn again till you learn to show empathy. So the weak have to be taken care of by the strong. And in the Mahabharata, you have two parties, one, five brothers, five brothers with seven armies, and then you have uh, hundred brothers with 11 armies. Very clearly, one is strong, one is weak. And the question is, how do you share? Who takes care of whom? Who supports whom? Who empathizes whom? Now that defines the justice, if you want to use the word, if you want to use the word. But it is, do you show empathy? Are you repaying the debt of privilege, the debt of entitlement, the debt, all those debts that you carry? You have 100 brothers. You have more wealth than anybody else. You are in debt. You owe society. So that's the closest you come to social contract. It's not exactly social contract in the Western sense of the word, but it's the closest yes. where the culture comes together. Uh, it's so yeah. beautiful. And, and when you said that to us the other day, it just made it so clear why this story is so important and has lasted for so long. And, and for us, really why we want to retell it again. And just to jump back to um, that conversation about a theatrical language. So basically, our Mahabharat, um, we're taking this ancient story and we're telling it uh, over seven hours. Um, and uh, there's three parts to it. The first part is looking at all the ancient ways it was told, the languages. So like you were saying, so uh, shadow puppet theater, um, masks and dance performance, Katakali performances, um, using Kalari uh, Payatu as a vocabulary, uh, an ancient uh, martial arts employed into the storytelling. And it evolves over time to, to the second part, uh, the middle part, sorry, is um, a, a community meal where all the audience gathers. We all share a meal and, a meal and one, story tells, one storyteller tells the story of the Yaksha, which we try to summarize all of the exile in that one story. I know it's a bit ridiculous, but the, the idea though is to get to the experience that, you know, people experience this story and this message of empathy in so many different ways over time. And in the, in the final part, it goes to something more contemporary, you know, projectors, fancy theater stuff. And one of the things we try to do is um, uh, in the second part, we, we tell uh, uh, the Bhagavad Gita in an opera style. And part of where that came from, and we're gonna show a little clip in just a second, but part of where that came from was trying to find a way to express the heightened hugeness of this moment where where god and man are having a conversation and god reveals himself and uh we try to employ the sanskrit in the telling just going back to the language it's really interesting because we were using english the whole way through but as a way of again engaging in the the juxtaposition between east and west to try to tell this story um and so maybe we'll just sh share the video and then we can talk a little bit about it rajat do you mind uh hit and play Yada, 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 
So the Bhagavad Gita is one chapter in the Mahabharata. The Bhagavad Gita literally means the song of God. Well, how do you represent in the theater a conversation between God and a human? Well, you find the most epic form of storytelling that we have, and that's opera. Opera and the Bhagavad Gita are just so intertwined because the Bhagavad Gita is an epic. And opera is such a heightened form of emotion that it just makes sense to put these Sanskrit words to Western classical music. So we're bringing more Western influences, but still being uh, keeping the tradition as much as we can just to make it all more relevant to what we see in the world around us today. It's kind of a meeting of the worlds and a connecting of the cultural dots. You have actual drama as well as the musical side of it, and it just becomes this thing that blows open emotionally and expressively as well. It's really remarkable to see how these two worlds have combined and done so seamlessly, and I think Suba and John have done an amazing job with that. So that was a, a, a little clip of our last workshop. No, this um, is just too good, too good. You know, if I say something, it's really what is called theophany, where you see God in front of you, and um, um, you know, when I heard it for the first time, I was like completely shaken because it gives you goosebumps. You know, in it's what is the English word for it is horripilation. It's a word that you use a lot. In in Sanskrit, the word for this is Roma Roma Harshana, where the hair stands on end. And one of the storytellers of the Mahabharata is actually called Roma Harshana, the one who makes your hair stand on end. Another storyteller is called Ugrashrava, the one who has a loud voice. So, you know, these are the words of the storytellers. But what is interesting over here is let's come back to the idea of dharma. In dharma, you know, in nature, the, the strong eat the weak. That, but in the human society, the strong have to take care of the weak. The big have to take care of the small, you have to help the helpless. So that's the simplest definition of dharma. Now when Krishna takes his infinite form, he's asking, now tell me which side I should take. Because in front of infinity, which is Krishna, 
the strong is also insignificant and the weak is also insignificant in a simple mathematical principle so the kaurava army looks tiny in front of infinite and the pandava army is also tiny and the scene shows that you know the the we use the word god here in english but it's not god as in jehovah the creator of the world not the judgment god this god saying that i eat both of you i can eat both of you and spit you out i can consume both of you in front of me you both are the meat so which side should i take this side or that side on what if i am the infinite i am ananta then which side in this battle should i take and i will take the side of the battle of those who don't uh, who are who need to be helped so mm -hmm. the i will not go on the side of the mighty i will go on the side of the meek but remind the meek that when they were mighty did they behave with dharma because when you read the story of the mahabharata when the pandavas had all the wealth in the world they were not the nicest people on earth they no. were, they were <laughs> arrogant they were pompous they gambled away their kingdom it's something we forget that when you have power when you have privilege are you a nice person and the pandavas go through a phase where they do have power they have privilege and they are behaving like pompous brats and that's what the exile is all about the exile is about the uh, arjun bhim all of them when they go into the forest they are being told by the animals that you know what when you had all the power in the world you thought you were better than us but you are an animal and yeah. now you can treat them the way meek people are treated when you become servants in the king's kingdom you are abused the way you abuse servants so that's what theophany is all about the presence of god to show the mighty and the meek their place literally and i think and you know what i love about when you describe it like that it's it's you again you're forced you're asking us to zoom out to look at the metaphor of the piece rather than the literal and it's so easy for us when we fall into literal that it becomes like i was just talking to my mother about this yesterday and she was like no 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 the pandavas chose the or krishna chose the pandavas because they were good and 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 the kauravas they were bad and that's just it and these layers of how do we get an audience to to be able to do what you're asking which is zoom out to look at the larger scope and and that's what you know what we are trying to do with the opera is to access this script this text this story this idea from a different kind of um, part of your brain in a way right yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, when we were, it was funny because we were, when we were writing it, the first script that we came out with, we gave it to the composers, John and Suba, and they said, this is way too long for an opera. Like time, <laughs> again, time is different in music. Time is very different in opera. It takes long to express one idea. And so we had to really essentialize and try to come down to the, the golden nugget of what this thing was, which is actually an experience. It's not a logical mm. uh it's not something logical that you understand. The Gita, it takes you lifetimes, not even one lifetime to understand. And so how to experience God, we wanted to create something that is an is a, um, a godly divine experience, which is one of which is a choice to bring opera in. No, and see, the thing is this, what you said, time takes a different thing. It is 700 verses. If you take it literally, it means you spent about like three days in the middle of a battlefield <laughs> giving this dialogue. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Army is not going to Okay, let them finish their dialogue. Then we'll start fighting. It's not going to happen that way. Nobody's going to do that. So this good, bad difference that people try to make is simplistic. I always tell people when, when you go to the, the court, the judge is reading the Gita, 
the defendant is reading the gita the criminal is reading the gita everybody reads the gita because everybody thinks they are good and therefore they are the pandavas and everybody who reads the gita assumes they are the pandavas in all probability they are the kauravas and everybody says this one is duryodhana he is dushasan but they also don't want the innocent draupadi i have been violated yeah. <laughs> and actually you are the one who violated the world so yeah. you know, right wrong narrative unfortunately it's unfortunate uh, you know this, it's the, that's a tragedy of english translation and not just english translation you know to be fair the idea has not been translated dharma mm. has nothing to do with right and wrong and judgment judgment is the one thing that indian thought is very cautious about because it says you have to also look at the cycle of rebirth you're carrying mm. grudges of previous lifetimes there are so yeah. many grudges of previous life debts of previous lifetimes that you're carrying in this current lifetime so mm. you have to let go of things especially when you're privileged especially when you have got entitlement especially when you have estate authority you have been gifted with so many things that you must be more lighter you must allow people forgive people if you are educated you should be kinder you've been blessed with knowledge if you have the yeah. vedas with you then you should allow people to troll you <laughs> <laughs> and when i mean the, the thing, that's <laughs> <laughs> what that what i keep thinking about uh, from this conversation about dharma is that also it's not fixed like these ideas of right and wrong and good and bad and i'm on the right side none of that is fixed because uh, who is privileged and who is unprivileged in any situation will change so in one point of the story the pandavas are the meek and then there's a moment in the story where the pandavas are the mighty and you have to you're constantly negotiating where you stand you know the story when they're burning the forest right to build the city yeah yeah burning the forest now all the animals are going to say excuse me you are not meek you are the mighty you're burning the forest so yeah. look at the story just look at the story and that one story at that moment people have written poetries on it saying that oh the pandavas burned the forest it was eco it was against ecosystem but krishna tells them that how do you build a city without burning a forest how yeah. do you build a city tell me tell me how do you build a city without burning a forest and that is called dharma sankat the ethical dilemma if you don't cut the tree how do you make furniture simple you can live without yeah. furniture you can of course you can live without furniture but if you want the furniture you have to cut the tree and when you cut the tree you've destroyed an ecosystem and every animal that you've destroyed calls you unjust unfair cruel and you carry the debt of having cut the tree every time you use the furniture so mm. all the furniture are the dead body of trees yeah and you have to live with that you have to live with that cost yes yes um i'm just going to move us to some questions here i'm getting some fired in here um uh we have about 5 minutes left just to say so um this one kind of links to some things that we were talking about um uh someone asked as canadians say the medium is the message marshall mcluhan the medium uh, is the expression of a story and and matters as much as the narrative so rhyme and verse and and the original sanskrit text so how did the medium of expression impact its message in terms of the mahabharata it's been you know it's been told over time uh you know it's traveled outside of india as well right to to bali indonesia to many other asian cultures and beyond and i guess what the question is looking at is is um yeah how how does the form and the mode of expression impact its message i think the form is fluid if you look at it because it's theater 
remember 90% of society 99% of society is unlettered all these societies got the mahabharat not in a written format they heard it they saw it it was performed it was sung and each time it was sung it would be improvised upon you would keep improvising mm-hmm. because the audience participates in the storytelling indian uh, performances natya shastra is like a live it's very much like jazz jazz music is mm-hmm. a conversation with the audience without an audience you can't have jazz music you can't play jazz music in an empty room it needs the energy of the audience to create it so you, you cannot perform any indian theater without the audience the audience participates in it and therefore the medium is a dynamic medium which is constantly evolving it's that's the thing you cannot do it in an empty room ever the performance that you're yeah. doing um, um, a good story in india has to involve the audience that's why if you see the, the of course now we have got audio video these are new mediums which don't need an audience so you perform very differently but the older yeah. mediums were the performance is with the audience present in front of you so the audience is bored you change the story you you adapt yeah. so you see this in southeast asia also this constant oh the audience doesn't want to hear the story change the story get the sex scene get the violence get the music yeah. <laughs> play the drums everybody's yawning right now so come on let's play the drums let's play conscience you know and that's what you do that's and if you see this and there's a lot of if you look at the medium there's a lot of repetition they keep repeating the story again and again so you don't forget the theme uh-huh. so that's that plays a very important role yeah that that uh, i mean uh, that resonates so much especially now when so much of our live theater experiences is digital that lack of having the audience makes it so difficult to um to actually tell the story i mean it's it's like what you said uh, you, you want someone or someone who makes someone's hair stand on end well you need the hairs to be able to be stood on end because yes. <laughs> you can't do that quite to do it yourself like <laughs> <laughs> Um yeah. well uh, you know there are a couple more questions but I feel like we're kind of at the last sort of couple minutes here um I just wonder if there's any kind of thing to leave us with thinking in terms of this message and in terms of especially now where so many inequities are being exposed and as you said the rich are getting richer the poor are getting poorer um there's so many inequi- inequities of race in the world that we're all in these dialogues you know is there is what is the place of myths to especially ancient myths um in helping us to understand the moment that we're in and is it and how can can they be a kind of guide uh to help us through it you know when i see the media today the language what i call the westernized narrative because there is a sense of apocalyptic vision that the two armies will meet and fight you know when i saw the us elections it was almost the language was apocalyptic this whole yeah, civil war, war is coming world is coming to an end and there'll be the right and the wrong fighting and i said that's a vision of the world which is not universal it's a vision of the world there are other visions of the world there are very different visions of the world the mahabharat offers a different vision of the world where you don't judge you still fight for what do you think you fight for the meek you work to help people but there is no judgment because mm-hmm. at, even in the mahabharat at the end of the day i mean and i'd like you know this to be, people to remember at the end of the day the bad guys go to heaven and the yeah. good guys go to hell and mm-hmm. then the hero of the story the pandav yudhishthir goes to god is very angry and he says this is wrong bad guys have to go to hell and good guys have to go to heaven right that's what the algorithm says that's what it should be and god says that you know what when you are alive 
the kauravas the bad guys the villains refuse to share earth with you and when you are dead you refuse to share heaven amazing how is yeah. the difference if they refuse to share the earth you refuse to share heaven when will bliss ever be yours you will never be at peace you don't share you are not generous that's dharma at the end of the day dharma comes yeah. down to generosity and if you are if you are claiming the villains were not generous you the heroes are equally ungenerous in paradise and again i think what's so beautiful is is what you're saying is it doesn't let anyone off the hook we're all responsible we must stay responsible and there's no easy kind of cut to it right wrong easy peasy answer no sit in the confusion um we're just at time uh, that that i just can't thank you enough uh you're the way you clarify these complicated ideas the way you express them with such hilarity and joy uh it's so inspiring and so um so so amazing to be able to speak with you as we're also navigating this this text and i just want to say to the audience just get his books we're at the literature yeah. festival get get his books there they are <laughs> marked up there's a million of them online order them we're why not theater our website is why not dot theater sign up to our newsletter stay in touch with us uh jaipur literature festival so grateful to have us here uh devdat you're amazing you're just i hope yeah, we can say thank you so I hope much. we get to see the show thank you both of you guys are doing wonderful work and the opera i think is i'm waiting for it to come to india it must be done, done. open air theater it'd be like sanjoy sanjoy is on it <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jaipur Bites wherever you're listening to this. Ah!